thinking about next generation leaders, we're, we're living now in an unprecedented world. In fact, an unprecedented level of uncertainty about tomorrow, right? With the COVID-19 and we've been living this for a few months now. How does the next generation leadership look like to you based on your experiences? Well, I have to say the funniest, one of the funniest memes I've seen come around recently has been, it said, uh, imagine in the future when the country is run by homeschooled kids, uh, no, kids who were homeschooled by day drinkers. <laughs> and I was like, that's not a good thought. Not a good thought. Um, but I actually think it's not a lot different, but the onus is on the parent now to really um, be a great example. More so, I mean, right now, more so than it is historically. Because the, the kids see us and they know what we do. And you may say as a parent, do what I say, not as I do, or listen to me because I'm dad, right? That doesn't matter. That's like using your title for power. It doesn't matter. The title doesn't matter. It's about respect and character. It's about being a good example. It's about, you know, in everything you do. Now we've all taken on responsibility of kind of being involved with, with homework. It's about being available for that, right? It's about being a part of what they're doing and helping them because they need help. Right. So I think that's a really important part of it. Um, the other important part of it is continuing the social interaction. I mean, my kids are on zoom all the time. Um, They're probably going to soon create their own podcasts. They probably could <laughs> actually, I think one of my kids had to explain to me how part of this works. Um, but they're on, they made a video yesterday and I said, can you send that to me? So I'm sending it to the family and they're like, it's in the shared folder. And I said, Just, can you email it to me? Like, Dad, let me show you how the shared folder works. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. But I think the challenge right now is, you know, understanding uh, the impact that all of us have and also making sure you're generating opportunities for leadership to come through and create environments where people can step up and lead. I know in the boys' school, they do that all the time. Like it's, and it's just part of what they're – they go to a, a school where that's part of the, the learning process is like making them leaders. Um, so that said, I don't think we're ever going to get out of this situation doing more things virtual than we've ever done before. So the skills that they're learning and being able to interact virtually and do it much more effectively, I think than we had to do it up front. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be helpful to them. Um, you know, I, I think coming out of this crisis, we're going to be a very different world than we were before. I mean, you know, Kirk Kaufman, who's one of the, um, foremost thought leaders on employee engagement, if not the guy, um, recently had a survey where it showed that people have actually been more productive working from their homes than they have working in offices. And I think, you know, a lot of the industry and in pharma right now is in Boston and San Francisco. Those are wonderful locations. I have nothing against them. But a lot of the talent in pharmaceuticals is in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Delaware. And a lot of those people aren't going to leave. But why do people have to relocate in the future? Right. right. You can travel, but why do we need to relocate? When, when actually what matters is the impact that we have. And if we can have that virtually, I mean, I've been on doctor's appointments recently. It's all telemedicine, everything. So in things like this, virtual meetings, they seem to work. So I think that we're going to see more and more of this. And I think that because of what we're going through, the kids are going to be 
better off. Um, I'll say one more thing. I actually think it's a good thing. Um, I think we all need to realize that consumption can't be infinite and that we need to be responsible. And I own a part of that. I think everyone does. But my kids have had to learn through this that you can't get Cocoa Pebbles today just because you want them right now. Mm-hmm. As an example, a delayed gratification. And I, I actually think that this is the first time since the 70s, maybe, but the Depression, I don't know. It's going to be the first time people are experiencing genuine hardships. Right. And I think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves. And I think we're going to learn what's really important and what's not important. And, and I think that's critical. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to humble a lot of people. Yeah. And, and I think if you've got, and I would say this, too, if you've got people who work with you in the service industries, mm-hmm. um, I'll just tell you, I, I own it. I'm continuing to support those people because those people mean a lot to me as a person and what they do is important to me. They can't do it right now. What can I do to help them? Right. And I think we all need to be thinking about that because those people are in many instances, the ones who are unfortunately the most impacted and, and how can we make a difference with them? I would just, I ask that as an open question to the viewers. Um, Dave, you talked a little bit with me before about your management management style, some of your tips of success, success as managing others, working with others. I would love for you to share that with the, with the listeners. Sure. Um, by the way, this is my dog, Summer. And one of the great things about being at home more is I can be with Summer more because she comes and sits in my lap and, and inspires me all the time. But I have to talk to the nice man and his podcast listeners. So I'm going to have to put you down. Okay. Go find the boys. Okay. I love you. Beautiful dog. Okay. So, so I think before you start managing other people, you need to manage yourself. And I always tell people, uh, the very first thing in my mind is there's three things that are most important. Number one is relationships. We've talked a lot about that. Number two is reputation. Do you show up? Do you do a good job? Are you inspiring? Are you inspired? Is your output outstanding? Mm-hmm. The third is, managing yourself in other ways. And one of the things that I think about is I've always told people work for yourself. Like when you first get out in the work world, save six months worth of living expenses in a savings account. Um, I say, you know, take care of yourself. You're you're the only you you're going to have. Right. But you want to work for yourself because there may be instances the change is consistent, change is constant, it's always happening. If you know that you have the confidence to work for yourself, you can embrace that change. You can take it on and find out what is the opportunity in the change? How can this be better than it was before? Because unfortunately, what I've seen in my career is people who have overextended and they tend that it's just one example. They they tend to be bought into the status quo. Mm-hmm. And either for that or other reasons. There is no status quo. There is no security. It does not exist, right? As long as you have relationships, people that can count on you and you can count on, a reputation to deliver, to be accountable, to produce, right? And to some degree, leading your own destiny, 
You know, making decisions, not because you have to, but because you choose to, I think it makes you approach what you do a little bit differently. And that to me is to anyone. Um, you and I talked earlier, I think something that took me a long time to figure out and maybe other people are much better at it than I am. I'm sure there are many people who are far better at it than I am, but it's that any job you're in, you're, you're always leading and managing up, down and across. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And the thing that I learned is just, you got to think about what is most important just in any other leadership skill is who, uh, who are you helping? Who, who are you working with? What do they need? What's important to them? How can you help them achieve their objectives? That's true all the way around, right? A senior leader in a company. Does a senior leader in a company need a 30 page slide presentation for a simple topic? No, they need three points. Three points that they can remember. Three things that are simple, right? Do they need you to bring them crazy ideas that you have no idea how to actually accomplish? Maybe in a visioning exercise. But my experience is what they really need is for you to understand the strategy and execute it and report that back to them so they can be confident that you are doing what we need to do and you are doing it well. That whatever the result ends up being, that what you are doing is what you need to execute to, to generate the results that you plan to achieve, right? They, they need to be confident of that. Understand their political environments. A lot of companies, you know, many companies are very, very political. You gotta understand what's important to them and the way in which they are part of the different political environments in the organization and what's not important or what can actually be counterproductive, right? Mm -hmm. So those are important things to be aware of, managing your leadership. You, to your leader, should be an asset. Um, a friend of mine said he worked for a, a professional football coach once who said, the first week you work here, when I ask you for a glass of water, I expect you to bring it to me. The second week I work here, when I hold out my hand like that, there should be a glass of water in it. The third week you work here, the glass of water should show up before I have to hold out my hand. <laughs> <laughs> so it's anticipate what your leadership needs and bring it to them. Be seen as a value to them, not as a challenge to them, right? Yeah. The leading teams, I can speak specifically to, to sales teams. You know, I think the most important thing is being, is establishing, having a vision for not only what you want to achieve or accomplish, but how you want to do it. And that's your culture, right? To me, that's when I, in my last job, I had, I had five, key things that we focused on. Number one was culture. And the way that I defined culture was everyone on the team should know that they are valued and valuable to themselves, the company, our customers, to patients, to, to the teammates and to their families and friends, right. Right? the whole thing. But you need to know that you're valued and valuable to both because people want, people need to feel like what they do makes a difference and people need to know that they are valued for doing it. Reward, recognition, et cetera. I think, you know, to me, that's the most important thing. Beyond that, it's setting very clear direction and priorities. It's just like I talked about before with your senior leadership. It's about how are you able to break down as a leader what's important for them to know. Some of your job is gonna be shielding them from all other things that are going on, right? How do you do that? Create the culture for your team that you know that you need. 
break down to the two or three things that you need to focus on and remain completely consistent in your focus on those things. Incredibly important. And you need to personally make sure they know that you care and that they, and, and that they can trust you. And that is, that is absolutely foundational. I was explaining to the boys the other day, I used to tell everyone I worked with, look, you don't know me. I don't know you. Think of trust like a bank account. I know it's an old you know, way to think about it, but I just assume that I have nothing in your trust account. Like I got to earn that. And, and I'm going to act in a way, trustworthiness, I'm going to act in a way that I feel like I'm putting deposits in the trust account that you have with my name on it. So this is really unique, very original. I like this. Love it. Because one of these days, I'm going to screw up. One of these days, I'm going to make a mistake or I'm going to do something that your first, your initial thought is, what's that about? Or is he deceiving me? Or what's going on? And if there's a lot in your trust account with me, you'll probably think, assume positive intent. Right. Assume positive intent. At least don't react yet. I can trust this. I might need to understand it better, but at least I can trust it. Because I can tell you, as a leader, anytime you go through a very difficult situation, that's what's on people's minds. They need to know that they can trust you, right? Absolutely. So I think all of those things are very important. I think, again, relationships, leading across, managing across your teams. I think anytime you're in an organization, it's really critical to be proactive about building relationships with other stakeholders. Um, with other leaders of other teams that you work with. Mm -hmm. you know, a good example, I can tell you, one of the first things I ever did in marketing roles is I went to get to know the head of regulatory, the head of legal, the head of um, compliance. Um, I involved them in my meetings. I involved them in the creation of things. I didn't wait until the last minute uh, because I'm, I looked at them not as people who are going to shut down what I want to do, but as brilliant, experienced talented, educated people who, once they understand the intent and the objective, could actually be helpful in creating something that, oh, by the way, is legal and compliant and appropriate from the beginning, right? And, and so it, just as an example, like always, my viewpoint is everybody's got to get things done, yeah. right? What I've always told people is always leverage a task to build a relationship. Never sacrifice a relationship to accomplish a task. I love that. I know all our coach listeners are going to enjoy, uh, are going to use that practical tip. Yeah, it's, it's because there's, there's a moment in a lot of decisions in anything that you're doing that you come to that crossroads and you just have to know it's the relationship. Asking for help Asking for perspective on things when you have a relationship or a, a, a task to accomplish, letting people know that you care enough to ask their input can be a really small thing, right? But it shows that you value their, their viewpoint, right? So I think there's a, my, my good friend and one of my closest mentors, Jerry Acuff, uh, who literally wrote the book on relationships, says the way to build relationships is through inexpensive, unexpected, thoughtful acts of kindness. Yeah, that summarizes it all. Yeah, a, yep. lot, of, a lot of the stories we, we both shared, you shared. I have a good friend who oh, likes this particular brand of car, and I was at a, a, 
a car show once and the, the manufacturer was giving away these little pins, like a, a lapel pin with this car on it. And I thought it was cool. So I got one. And then the next day I was at work, he was out of his office and I went to his office and put the pin on his desk and wrote a little note and say, Hey, I just picked this up. I thought you'd like, it. you know, it didn't cost me anything. Right. I dropped it off at his office. The minute he got back to the office, he's like, I really appreciate that. It's really cool. And the fact that you thought about me means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Gestures, generosity, you know, empathy doesn't really cost, cost a lot. It just costs our time and attention, which is so, it's a luxury, right? These days. In the yeah. We live in. Yeah, you know, your comments on trust made me think about also character because I, uh, when I advised a startup uh, on uh, culture, Marianne, Marianne Jackson was a part of that company, Synergy. Uh, yeah. I made that distinction between character and behavior. And, you know, trust is really the determining factor that can really maximize the potential and that character of the employees that you hire based on character and behavior from others who may not express for example, how passionate or innovative they are simply because they may not trust their leadership. So trust is such a critical determinant and, you know, really maximizing the potential and creating other leaders. Your, that, that three-pronged approach, you know, to your particular leadership style uh, are incredibly practical, I think, you know, managing up, managing across and managing down. Now, one, one question that also I thought about uh, as you were speaking, was uh, with a lot of the next generation leaders, right, who are graduating from business schools, they're choosing to really work for themselves without a lot of that experience, without having those managers, the leaders, without having to prove themselves. Uh, they just want to go out into the world and just make it, make it big, right, without going through a lot of those hurdles, failures, lessons learned. What is your advice to, to them, these new entrepreneurs? Um, Hmm. Good question. Go for it. Innovative, you know, like because they want to be innovative and they don't want to wait to manage up. So how, how do they take your advice and, you know, kind of personalize it? You know, I would say um, the first thing is, like I said earlier, go for it. Like if yeah. someone's going to change the world, look, go, go for it. Right. I would say the next piece is we've all had leadership development that wasn't necessarily called leadership development. Uh -huh. Whether you've played team sports or you've been part of the student council or you've been in a club or a group, you know, and, and plus your parents and your friends, they have a lot of impact on that. I think to me, the, the one thing I would tell anyone who wants to do that is uh, the number one skill that they've got to learn to balance uh -huh. is um, certainty with humility. Mm -hmm. And what I learned uh, as I was out looking at different jobs, um, I learned something really important about career management. And, and this is not a, like, uh, a law. So this right. is not something that's always true. But in my opinion, it's something to consider. And that is, it is very challenging to work for a company where the CEO is also the owner because it's very difficult for them, especially if they've achieved some degree of success, it's difficult for them to hear someone else has the answer. It's very difficult for them to change or to even really truly want something. 
because all their lives, keep in mind what we're talking about, all their lives, this radical different thing they want to do, people have been telling them they can't do it. Yeah. Well, they did it. Right? So why do I need to listen to anybody else? I figured this all out. Right? I would say to those people, value and cherish your gift that led you to innovate and have such a huge impact. But recognize that in order to go from a one hit wonder right. or one idea or one business line, you will need to enlist the skills, talents, abilities, education, motivation of many more people than you. You need to scale it. So think about how do you lead with your vision to scale your business? And what does that mean? It means you need to learn to lead and enroll and align and motivate people. Mm -hmm. And this and, takes time, right? This yeah. Advice. I mean, that you're yeah. I mean, you, you can't, because I've seen too many companies with the CEO leader and they can't keep people around them because mm -hmm. people figure out no one's going to listen. They're not, person's not going to listen, right? Um, they're never going to scale. They're never going to grow. But then you look at a Michael Dell or a Bill Gates. I mean, it's, those are lessons that they had to learn over time. Now, I'm not sure Jeff Bezos has learned this lesson because <laughs> I understand the dynamic and the culture at Amazon is really challenging. But, you know, that's something that company's going to have to decide if it's something they want to address or not. And I don't work there, so I can't, it's hearsay, it's third party. I don't know if that's the case. I know that Bezos has done amazing things and I appreciate his services because if it weren't for Amazon, there's a lot of things that wouldn't be able to be delivered to my house right now. But uh, it's a really good question, though. It's a really good question. Because here's something I do find. I've found people that I've worked with and for mm -hmm. who hooked onto someone's coattails when they were early in their career. Mm -hmm. So let's say they were a manager and they found a director and they hitched their wagon to that person. Right. right? Well, that person from that point on has got their back politically, right. taking care of them. They've got their loyalty, right? Um, that person doesn't need to learn conflict resolution skills or relationship building skills or team resolution skills. They don't need to. Great point. Because they're brought along. And you see these people and they get to a point in time where something happens. Interesting. Either the guy that, or the girl, the female, the, the man or woman that they've hitched their wagon to isn't there anymore. Right. Or... They find themselves in a unique situation and they never learned those skills that you would have learned. It's almost like math. One of my sons wants to learn calculus. I'm like, hold on, let's do algebra first. Right. <laughs> right. They didn't learn back when they were a younger, uh, a, a developing employee, all those fundamental skills. So now they're in a huge position. They don't think they need them. Mm. Right. That's challenging. <laughs> so sometimes you really have to be grateful for failure. Really? And the people have to understand oh. going in, you know, after graduating and spending money on those MBAs that they'll, they may have to work at a couple of different companies to learn and fail first, right? Yep, uh, yep. You know, Paul Rogers used to have a saying about people like that, and it's that they never had a scratch on their truck. It's like you've got to, you've got to get to the point in your career where you understand you're going to fail. And when you fail, mm -hmm. you step back and you learn. Yeah. You're going to make mistakes. I tell the boys all the time. I don't have a problem when you make mistakes. As long as you're honest about it, you learn from it. Yeah. It's okay. 
Dave, I was going to say, don't make stupid mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the same ones a couple of times, right? More exactly. <laughs> fool me once, shame on me. No, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dave, I want to be a little bit um, controversial here and kind of go back to this question that I uh, want to address with you because I think it can be very helpful and valuable to really self-reflect for many of us in our industry. You know, we're absolutely, I completely agree that we're doing some great things in rare diseases, changing people's lives. But I would love you for you to provide some insights on, on how our industry has evolved and how you would like it to improve and transform in the future in terms of culture, in terms of internal politics and collaboration and engagement or lack thereof you know, which is a hot topic these days, right. right? So how has it evolved and what would you like, what would you like to improve to see transformed in the future? Well, I think, you know, look at the industry and it's where it's been, where it's going, where, I mean, look at the, look at the environment that it existed in, right? Look at the environment in the eighties and nineties as an example. You know, there's uh, a lot of focus on science. Uh, Merck was seven times the fortune uh, company of the year, right? Um, things were growing, expanding rapidly, left and right. When I first started out, there were 20,000 sales reps. Um, there was a lot of opportunity. A lot companies are expanding. There's promotion opportunities. There's new brands. There's opportunity to work on the brands. You know, and, and the companies at that time really were more focused, I think, on the priorities uh, that, that were more balanced. I mean, it was a lot, you know, and Merck, George Merck, founder of Merck said, patience before profits. And when we were part of Merck, I heard that 150,000 times, if not more. People used to talk about it all the time, right? And the environment was different. So at the time, doctors were primarily the decision makers, full stop, right? Most of them were independent or they were just small groups, practitioners. Um, most people paid for their own medication or they had an insurance company that paid for uh, a part of the medication. Um, and and the, the market was exploding. Um, I think a pivotal moment of change came about in the mid nineties with regard to promotion. And that, that's actually two things happened. One is Procardi XL was gonna lose its uh, patent. And that was Pfizer's largest product for blood pressure, nifedipine delivered in the uh, gastrointestinal system where it had like a little pill with a laser hole drilled in it and it would squirt out, right? The medication. Well, then they came out of Norvax, Gamlodipine, and that was a better product. But they needed to get, convert utilization over from Bricardi Excel into Norvax. Well, they made an enormous investment in launching that product. Prior to Norvax launch, it cost, the, a launch typically would, uh, be about a 20 to $25 million line item. By the time your launch meeting, your media, your material, your uh, MISs, your trials, et cetera. You know, but but the, no, the commercial part is like 20, 25 million. Um, the, the launch of Norvax was over 250 million. It's more than 10 times. Now, Pfizer was smart because they knew that they had a lot riding on it. So I think they did a, a good thing. But that's kind of where other companies, Pfizer was always a leader, where other companies were saying, okay, this is a profitable business model. We can invest more money in it. 
and we can promote more. We continue to develop more, but we can promote more and we can get more value out of these products. We can commercially get more value. So that's when you saw Salesforce expansion. And again, the second to me, one of the second most important things, Prilosec, direct to consumer advertising. You know, so all this promotion's going on and all these products are out there. And then I started, there's 20,000 reps. Within a few years, there were 140,000 reps. Seven times as many reps, right? Boom. Same number of doctors. And we as an industry asked ourselves why we ruined access, <laughs> right? But I love the old African saying, uh, when the elephants fight, it's the grass that suffers, mm -hmm. right? If I was seeing five reps before and now I'm supposed to see 35 as a doctor a day, right. can't do it, right? So I think that was one thing. We were in this growth mindset, right. very appropriate. Mm -hmm. I think what's happened over time is you see um, the physician autonomy has become very low. Like the ability of a doctor to make the decision is much lower. In 2008, three quarters of doctors worked for themselves or as a part of a group of doctors, right? right. Only 25% work for a company, like a hospital. In 2012, it was even, 50-50. In 2014, three quarters of the doctors worked for a company, a corporation, a hospital, an integrated delivery network, a staff model HMO. So the decision process followed the money, <laughs> right? And, and, and we also went from an environment where formularies were not as much managed to an environment where formulary management was key, right? So very different in the industry's ability to impact that prescribing and their reimbursement, one thing. I think the other is, you know, we kind of got past the mega drug, the, the mega launch era, uh, mega brands, right? Pfizer was 10 billion with uh, Lipitor before it was generic. Prilosec was 5 billion, Nexium was 6 billion. Crestor was five billion, you know, and all those went generic. And it was like all the pharmacy directors were sitting there waiting for the day that those went generic to start cutting the pharmacy budget. Well, the pharmaceutical industry figured out that the business in the future was oncology, rare disease, and those type of products. Expensive, high, you know, small demand, orphan demand, but incredibly high unmet medical need the ability to charge a greater amount for the product because, right, it was uh, a much greater need, a much smaller market. And you saw companies kind of go toward that environment to a greater degree, away from the mega brands. Suddenly the pharmacy managers who've been calculating all these savings, right. budgets blew up. And it's because all the rare disease products, the MS drugs, the, um, um, all the oncology products, right? They're life-saving, life-changing molecules, but they're new and they're expensive. So you begin to see the, the plans ratchet down control on that over time. But what you saw inside the companies was really, to me, the cultural difference is what really changed. This industry, in many instances, not all, seems to have gone from a growth mindset to more of a fixed mindset. And you probably read the book about mindset by Carol Dweck from Stanford. The very different things. Growth mindset, you can continue, make the pie bigger. Fixed mindset, fixed pie, get the biggest piece you can, right? And there are all sorts of other changes that happen in the industry. It's like human resources. In the uh, 80s, 90s, a greater share of the pay of senior executives became at risk, which meant stock. So rightly, the motivation of those people kind of tended to focus more on growing the share price 
than anything else. That's how they're compensated, follow the money, right? And in doing that, they had to make decisions for the share price, right? Taxes in the U.S. are too high. Move the company to a low-tax region, the Caribbean, Switzerland, Canary Islands. Um, operating costs are too high. Take the jobs that you can offshore, send them to China and India, right? It made a lot of sense and from a financial perspective. But again, it's because the industry is so focused on that shareholder value, not as much on patients, communities, employees, et cetera. And I think that is not just this industry. It's almost that the Wall Street culture has begun to permeate all businesses, the more financialized they've all become. I agree. Absolutely. Right? And that's a different culture. So now imagine yourself working for one of these companies. You're in this new era, right? There's 10 people working on a particular initiative. Well, we can't afford 10 people anymore, or we're going to outsource half of it. Now there's only seven. And the next year there's only five. And then there's only three. And at some point, the people who are left are thinking, well, there could be two or even one. What do I need to do to defend myself politically? How can I be a survivor? How do I need to cover myself, right? Decisions become political rather than scientific. Decisions become political rather than anything, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what's, I think that change happened over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And what I hear from people I work with is there's more of that going on now than there was. Now, you know, I want to recognize there's a lot of great pharma leaders. I mean, outstanding pharma leaders. Absolutely. From the AZ days, I remember, gosh, people who are very successful there now. Rod Wooten, Rick Suarez, Don Sawyer just came back. They're all great people. They're all wonderful leaders. They deserve to be where they are in those roles. Okay. I think about uh, my, my time at uh, Mallinckrodt. You know, I look at uh, Hugh O'Neill, as I mentioned earlier. He's a great guy. He's brilliant. He's strategic. He's great to get along with. He's a great leader. He's very inspiring. You know, but what you've seen over time is kind of some of the people who've ended up in being a survivor, that's how they managed to make it up the ranks. Okay. And as we all know, your managers are culture. So if someone got there by basically politics, right. their leadership and management style is going to be different. And the higher those people are and the more of, the, of them that there are have an impact on the culture of a company. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's what you see. It's very simply. It's when companies decided to go into this mode of continuous reorganization, people adapted to the new environment. The new environment is not focused on stakeholders and customers and communities and employees and patients. It was much more focused on stakeholders. I'm sorry, on shareholders, mm -hmm. right? And that has become a driver to the culture in, again, not just the pharmaceutical industry, but I would say in industry overall, right? Why is this important? It's important to know the environment that you are in and how you lead within that environment. Because like I talked about earlier, the people who are above you need to know that you're loyal to them, you support them, you're bringing solutions, and you're bringing them uh, uh, good examples of how you're executing their strategy. No matter how they're motivated, they need that. The more political they are, though, the more wins they need in terms of execution. You need to show them that what they want to have done is what is being done. 
right? It's really, really critically important. And I say in terms of managing laterally, mm -hmm. relationships are critically important. You know, you're, if you did, like I said before, you've got six months of salary in the bank, you stay in the job as long as it fits you or as long as the company believes that you fit, right? You don't act like you got to hold on to something because inevitably holding on gets let go, right? It's, you, you need to have a positive motivation, keep the people around you positive and continue to drive those relationships. And then the people that are working on your team, <laughs> you need to focus on the culture that you are going to create and shelter them from a lot of these other things that are going on, especially if they're field sales. Field sales doesn't want to know about the parlor games and the castle uh, intrigue and headquarters. They don't want to know it. They don't need to know it. In fact, the more of it they know and put on Cafe Pharma, the more distracted everybody is, right? You want to keep people focused on what we're trying to deliver. And really, in that sense, why we're trying to deliver it. And that's ultimately for patients. So I think it's not, I always tell people, look, the environment's the environment. You learn to adapt. You adapt or you die right? Understand that companies are different now. It doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean those people are motivated wrong in some instances. It's because when they grew up, it's all they knew. <laughs> right? You just have to know how they think. And as you and I talked earlier, look, in business and in life, it doesn't matter if you like someone or not. If you can learn from them, learn. Mm -hmm. It's better if you like them and respect them and want to be their friend, but that's not always going to be the case always use the opportunity to learn and always read your environment and know how to adapt. Yeah. That's a lot of great insight. Uh, what a great lesson there. And uh, it seems like you are recognizing or would agree that there is somewhat of a movement. I mean, there, there is a, a swing in the pendulum uh, to some extent, but uh, well, what is the trend now? I mean, is there a change towards that growth back to that growth mindset? I think there is a change back to the growth mindset. I think that it, it, it's primarily powered through these smaller companies though, like rare disease companies. Mm -hmm. It's mostly the companies that are literally like the brand new ones that, where there's a lot of science. Yeah. Um, and where there is the thing about rare disease that's great is you actually do get really close to the patient. I mean, literally close to the patient. Mm -hmm. And the more companies do that and, and everybody, I've never seen a company so funny when I was on the vendor side, everybody said, we're the most patient friendly company, patient focused company there is, you know, <laughs> it's just like when I was in marketing, every company I went to, they said, we have the worst approval process of anyone. We're the most conservative of anyone. Like, oh, no, you're not like, <laughs> just, just calm down. Um, but I think the more companies focus on the patient, I think that that is, uh, that's going to make a difference. And I would also say this, Patient advocacy and patient centricity. That's the future, yeah. right? That's your yeah, and I would also say this. It depends on how much of a um, – how much, how much weight does senior leadership really place on culture and employee engagement? Yeah. Really, really place on it. Like no, Dave, not, that, not talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. If you really place value on that, right? You know, you and I talked about it. One of my biggest rules in hiring people is the no asshole rule. Pardon my language. Yeah, no, thanks. That's also a, a rule of mine for any team I've had. Like the fastest way to get on my bad side when I was leading a team is to create a negative environment for for your team or for others. 
because all that does is create basically a cancer in your culture, right? If I were leading a pharmaceutical company right now, I'd want to know who are the people whose teams are engaged with their leaders? Who, who's, whose teams I had a leader once who actually famously uh, bragged to HR, said, my team would walk over hot coals for me. And let me tell you this, they would, they would. Mm-hmm. Now, good, bad, or indifferent, it's true. It's, it's true. Um, and I'm not saying you have to have that by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, that may be a little bit weird. But you at least need trust. Now, there's a company, I don't want to go advocating certain companies, but there's a company out there that does this by interviewing different levels in the company mm-hmm. and across different functions yep. to determine what this looks like. And they are remarkably good at it. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, I'll be glad to talk to you more about it. I just don't want to use your podcast as an yep. advertisement. 